The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is my home base. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work, and it is an extension of what I did for research way back about three and a half years ago. And it's about a, it's also a complement to the work that I do at Insignium, which is a management consulting firm. I'll get to the program in just a moment, but let me say a big thank you to my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. If you don't know them, they are a leading locally focused job board here in the nation. They're dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard and giving job seekers control over their search so they can find work close to home. Thanks for the partnership, Jobbing, Jobbing.com. For this week's conversation, with me is Dr. Sharda Jogi, who is a professor, astronomer, and the chair of the Department of Astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin. At UT, Dr. Jogi teaches classes for undergraduate and PhD students and conducts research to explore how galaxies and their constituent stars, black holes, and dark matter halos grow across cosmic time. Today, we'll be talking about her journey that ultimately got her into the field and also about the field of astronomy itself, the tie between research, undergraduate education, and the STEM pipeline. And then finally, we'll talk about international scientific collaboration across the globe. Dr. Jogi, it's great to have you with me. Welcome to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for having me, Alice. So for this part, this first segment here, Dr. Jogi, I really want to understand really your, your education and how you really got your start in, in your career. It's quite fascinating to hear about some of the work that you've done. So to kick us off for the benefit of the, the listeners that don't know a lot about astronomy, what, will you say a little bit about the field? How would you describe what you and your colleagues are up to and why it's important? So astronomy is really, um, I would describe it as our quest for understanding the universe and our own place in it as a civilization. And I think um, this urge really to explore uh, the cosmos across you know, space and time is really what defines us as a civilization. We are very unique in that respect. And astronomers, uh, I think we have the privilege to answer many big questions. For instance, you know, what is the universe made of? When and how did the first stars, galaxies, planets, and black holes form? What are the demographics of planets outside our solar system? And, you know, what, how many of them might potentially be habitable? And what do we know about the dark component of the universe, um, which astronomers call dark energy and dark matter? And also the ultimate big question, what is the fate, the ultimate fate of the universe? Mm, when you say that, I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to enter the field. It's just <laughs> <I know. laughs> incredibly intriguing. Um, 
Well, next, I want to hear a little bit about you, if you will. I know you've had different roles at the Department of Astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin. What have you been up to? So at the present time, I wear many different hats, perhaps too many, in the Department (laughs) of Astronomy. So first, as you mentioned in your introduction, I'm a professor in the department, and in that role, I conduct scientific research on galaxies, and I supervise and mentor PhD students in my research group to develop the next generation of um, scientific leaders. And our group conducts scientific research, we present our results at conferences, and we publish our findings in major um, astrophysical journals. Another thing I do as a professor is I teach a range of different classes for PhD students, for undergraduate majoring in the science field, like astronomy, physics, and aerospace engineering. And I also try to engage even the undergraduate student in scientific research so that they can create new knowledge rather than simply passively learning about it. And finally, um, as of last September, I'm also the chair or head of the Department of Astronomy, And this is very exciting for me. I'm really looking forward and have been working with my colleagues to advance the department and the program on the world stage in terms of research and also education. I am very intrigued about your role there, Dr. Jogi. As you you know, when we spoke, I was quite interested in learning more about what's involved in being the chair of the Department of Astronomy. Well, I guess in a formal sense, the chair is the chief academic, intellectual, and administrative leader of the department and oversees all of its members, which means faculty members, instructors, research staff, students, as well as the administrative staff. So this is kind of a very generic description, but in practical terms, what it means is that the chair really has the responsibility and, I would say, privilege of shaping the quality and future of the department. So our astronomy program at UT is one of the top-ranked programs in the world, and we currently, in 2015, contribute to UT Austin's ranking in space science as 10th in the world Mm. and 4th among public U.S. universities. So I'm, of course, very excited about this ranking, and I want to further advance it by... Um, you know, through measures that advance excellence in research and education and also by promoting a culture of excellence, innovation, diversity, and inclusion. And I often say that um, promoting excellence and innovation is a little bit like building a tower, but the foundation of that tower is really the people, and it's very important not to forget that. So it's very important, I think, myself as a chair to advance a culture that engages, you know, everybody, all the amazing people into in our community towards this goal. I am really, when I hear you talk about your role, Dr. Jogi, it sounds enormous to me. And I do hear it as a privilege and, and, and also, of course, an awesome responsibility. One of the things that I am aware of, that I'm, one of the reasons I also wanted to have you on the show, is that I understand that you are the first female chair in, in its history in your department. That's so, and correct. I, Right. And, and so I remember quite fondly uh, getting to know you. We, we met, obviously, in Leadership Texas in 2014. That's how I, I had the privilege of having you come into my life. And I remember you sharing that you had caught some inspiration from one of our fellow or some of our fellow women participants about their roles, what they had done in leadership. And you said, you know what, I'm going to put my name in the hat based on that. And I was so inspired and encouraged by, by that part of your past. Can you share a little bit about your decision to be considered for the role and why did you think it was important to pursue it? 
So I should perhaps explain that our department um, has a somewhat unusual tradition of electing its own department chair, and we then pass our recommendation to the dean, who ultimately is the one who makes the decision. So when the other faculty members in my department first approach me and say, you know, why don't you run for election to be the chair, I was really torn. On one hand, um, I had, I knew that taking this leadership role would be very time-consuming, and I would have less time for my scientific research and for advising and mentoring my research group. And at the time, only 8% of our faculty were female, so I really believed it was important for me to keep advancing my scientific research. On the other hand, I knew that this was a time of great change for the department, and I had a chance in front of me to help shape the quality and future of the department. So... It was a little bit of a hard decision, and I was being reminded by my colleague, as you said, that we've never had a female department chair in the history of the department, and it was important to change that. And when I was pondering on the choice, this was exactly the time when I had the privilege of participating in Leadership Texas. And I will tell you, I was just blown away by the stories of these amazing women who were participating and they were making a difference in all arena of society, as you might remember, leading nonprofits, finding inequities, driving new laws, um, leading high-impact companies, and also being academic leaders. So something happened to me during that Leadership Texas session, and I just knew at the end I had to get out of my comfort zone, and I had to just go out and take this leadership to the next level and try to bring some kind of positive change on a much larger scale than I had tried before. So that was really the time when I said, went back to my colleague and I said, I've changed my mind, I will run. And I then got elected to be the next chair, and I think it was a good decision, having done it one year. <laughs> I, I really applaud it, Dr. Jogi. And what I also want to say to that is so often when I'm coaching people, I talk about the importance of associating with people who inspire us, who show us a positive way, who encourage us to reach for beyond what we think we can do or should do. And I think you are mm-hmm. a wonderful example of, of, of that. And so I had to grab that and make sure that we caught that in this interview. So thank you. Um, the next thing I wanted to get at, you know that I can't resist this because of some of the conversations we've had. I've, I've been investigating meaning in work for a long time. I'm that person that will hold up some poor person at a cocktail party and interview them interminably about their life and their careers, and they just want to get away and get a drink. But I really, <laughs> right, that's, that, that's me. I can't help it. But I do want to understand of how you decided on a career in astrophysics. Um, I want to understand, when did you become interested in science? How did you know that this was the right choice for you? How did this converge into a career as a scientist conducting research? How did it happen? So this is a rather long story because of my unusual background, so I hope you will humor me as I give you perhaps a rather long answer. Okay. So when I was in high school, my three loves were French, English literature, and physics. And in terms of grade, I was better in French and literature than I was in physics. And, but I felt this deep resonance with physics. I love, I would see the objectivity and elegance of science. And I was also amazed that just a few simple laws of physics could explain such a wide array of phenomena in the universe. And when I was 15 or so, I started to read a book about thought experiment that Einstein did uh, to describe his theory of special relativity. And I just got really hooked. 
at the way science is constantly questioning and reevaluating itself when it's faced with the new facts or new scales on which um, these facts are coming from. So I think it was around 15 when I basically decided, okay, I'm going to specialize in physics and I'm going to be a scientist who would advance knowledge. And um, I would say that this was a pretty crazy choice. Um, given where I was where I was coming from. And to understand that, I have to tell you a little bit about my limitation and, and, and the constraint I face. So I was born, I've been in the U.S. for 25 years, and I'm now a proud U.S. citizen, but my early beginnings were elsewhere. I was born in a very small island, very beautiful island called Mauritius, or Ile Maurice in French. And um, it was a former French colony, then a British colony, and it became independent in 1972. Now, for a child in Mauritius in the 1980s to dream of a career as a scientific researcher is just crazy. It's really against all odds because of the location and the resources we had. Mauritius is a very remote location. It's in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It's about 5,000 miles, so 12 hours flight from Europe. And it didn't have resources for pure funding, for funding of pure scientific research. I did not know a single researcher in physics. And so I knew if I wanted to have a career, I would essentially have to one way or another go and study in Europe and get a bachelor's degree in, in, uh, in physics. And my parents could not afford it. We are a middle-class family, so it was just impossible unless I won one of the eight scholarships that were given at the end of the British A-level. And, and um, I have to say that my parents were just instrumental because they did not have college degrees themselves, but they really gave me unconditional support to aim high and dream big. And they are the ones who really made me think, you know, maybe I have a shot at this. And my physics teacher as well, he had a PhD in astrophysics, and so he told me, you need to look into scholarship. And the first time I took the A-level exam, I actually ranked in the top 15, but not the top 8 to get the scholarship I needed, and I was crushed. I cried for a week. But then my mentors reminded me that, you know, failure is part and parcel of, of aiming high. And, and this is a lesson I think I've taken with me all my life. So I rolled up my sleeve and I went back to work for yet another year. And the next time I was lucky enough and I got two different scholarships, including one from the University of Cambridge to, in England to, to get a bachelor's degree in physics. And so that was really a transformational moment for me that really opened doors. And I think education was really my passport to the world. So from there on, I went ahead and I did my degree in physics. I, I encountered astrophysics in my last year at Cambridge as a project I did, applying the laws of physics to galaxies. And from there on, I came to the United States in, uh, I believe it was 1992, to do my PhD in astronomy. And everything flow, uh, basically flew from there. Oh, my gosh, that sounds like such a remarkable journey to me, Dr. Jogi. I'm listening to that, and I'm, I'm in awe of your ability to identify early in life some, your, uh, some fascinations, three of them specifically, and then to follow that and have the support of your parents and, and just get through. I really applaud what you've done. It's remarkable. Well, thank you. And I think, you know, mentorship and support, just those few words from a few people in your background are really, really important. And I always try to give a few words of encouragement to students, especially students who've been coming from, you know, backgrounds where they just feel this is not for me, but it can be for you if you want it to be. Mm-hmm. 
We have actually just a couple minutes before we, we go on our first break here. And I want to understand, I, you're, you're focused on the evolution of galaxies for your research. Why galaxies? Why this focus? Well, I mean, galaxies um, actually were my gateway into astronomy. My, my undergraduate project uh, was on galaxies, and that is what introduced me to astronomy. But um, over my career, I think I've focused on galaxies for many reasons. You know, first, they are very diverse objects. They are made of stars, of gas. Um, and, and this very mysterious component called dark matter. And our own galaxy, the Milky Way, is a type of galaxy called a spiral galaxy, but there are many other types of galaxies that are dramatically different. And so part of my research is to understand how galaxies like our own Milky Way came to form and how they will change in the future. And um, there are some environments that would not see galaxies like our Milky Way, and this is a little bit of a puzzle. What if we had born in a, been born in a different environment? We would not have galaxies like our own Milky Way. And another very interesting properties of galaxies is they have great labs to understand how stars form, how black holes form, because basically they are the factories where most of the stars in the universe form. And so stars in turn are very important to understand, uh, to produce the metals like carbon and oxygen that account for human life today. And lastly, I will mention galaxies are time machines. People always pause when I say that. And what I mean by that is galaxies are very bright, so you can actually see them really at very large distances. And when, since light from, from distant galaxies takes many billion years to get to you, the image of a distant galaxy is basically a time machine telling you how that galaxy looked 10 billion years ago, 8 billion years ago. So galaxies basically are signposts and time machines, and they allow us to look back in time and understand how you know, different structures in the universe came about at very early cosmic epochs. Oh, my gosh, that sounds just so incredibly alluring. I'm so glad to have you on the program, Dr. Jogi. It's time for our first break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Sharda Jogi, who is a professor, astronomer, and the chair of the Department of Astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin. We've been talking about her early interest in the, in the field and how she got into and developed her career and what she's doing as chair of the department. After the break, we'll talk about the field in which she's actually working, the tie between research, undergraduate education, and the STEM pipeline. Stay tuned. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. 
Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Sharda Jogi, who is a professor, astronomer, and the chair of the Department of Astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. For this segment, we'll talk more about the field of astronomy and that tie between research, undergraduate education, and the STEM pipeline. So from here, I would love to hear a little bit about what's happening there within the program. I, I, as you mentioned earlier, that the University of Texas Astronomy Program is, the top, is one of the top ranked in the world, and it conducts research in many frontier areas of astronomy. would love for you, you to share a little bit about these different areas and some of the important questions in astronomy today, if you will. Okay. So, yes, yeah, so indeed, as you mentioned, you know, we are one of the top-ranked programs in the world. And I should specify that when I say program, it's really the Department of Astronomy working in partnership with McDonald Observatory, which is one of our organized, uh, one of UT's organized research units. So we work hand-in-hand to advance scientific research. And one thing that's kind of unusual or, or it's a huge asset for our program is that we have a very broad scientific research program. We are basically doing scientific research in all the frontier areas of modern astronomy, and that includes stars, planets, galaxies, black hole, cosmology, which means how structures form in the universe, instrumentation, dark matter and dark energy. So there are very few programs that actually span this whole breadth. And some of the questions we are addressing include, and again, this is my entire department and program. This is, this is the research that the, that the entire department does, not my own research. Um, so the questions we are addressing include how do stars and planets form? Um, you know, what are the demographics and properties of planets that are orbiting stars outside our solar system? And eventually we would like to know what are the atmospheres like and how many of these are potentially habitable? Uh, we also, in my area, look at how galaxies and black holes form. How do they grow over time? How do they get transformed into the type of galaxies we know today, including our own Milky Way? Um, another area that's really interesting is to understand when did the universe produce most of its stars and, and why is it that this production of stars has been dramatically reduced in the present day? So this is something astronomers have observed, but we don't quite understand why has star formation shut down. Another thing, which is a very big question, is what, is what can we say about the dark component of the universe, which astronomers call dark energy and dark matter, and that's, that's a Nobel-winning prize you know, question. And, of course, ultimately, what is the fate of the universe? And to address that, we need to address all the other questions before. Again, I can see why you, you were so attracted to the field. And I will confess to you that I, if I had found astronomy much earlier in my life, it might have been a focus for me. So I know that's an interest for you to be able to evangelize the field. But I, I really find what you do incredibly alluring. And I'm so glad to talk with you on such a real level about the work that you do to contribute to our knowledge. It's, it's fascinating. Yes, and I do think astronomy has an unfair advantage with the public because, you know, there's a big question I think really resonate with, with everybody at all ages, all walks of life, and all disciplines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would like to hear more about this notion of, of the universe being dark. That is a fairly new concept for me, being somebody who lives <laughs> on the outside. I know it's not for you, but can you explain to us what does it mean that the, the universe is dark? Okay, so... Um, so uh, there's, there's a mounting, um, I would say, body of evidence, including the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics, that has now convinced uh, the scientific community that about 96% of the matter and energy in the universe is dark. So what does that mean? 
Well, if you look around you in the universe, we find that about 4% of the universe is made of what we call baryonic matter. That is simply means normal matter, just like matter that makes up you and me. Okay, so only 4% of the universe is made up of stuff like us. And of that 4%, only 0.5% is actually visible. That means it emits, you know, it emits light. We can actually see through telescopes, so that would include stars, gas, and anything that's hot and emits infrared radiation. But the remaining 96% is actually dark. And 23% of that dark component is called dark matter, called dark matter to be, to be, to be specific. And that is matter that does not emit light. So how do we know it's there? Well, we know because it has mass. And when you have mass, you have gravity. And so although we can't see it, through its gravity, it affects other things that we can see, that visible component. So we, did, we deduce there must be 23% of this so-called dark matter there to account for what, how we see the visible component of the universe moving. So 23% dark matter. The remaining 73%, this whopping 73% of the universe, is made of dark energy. Now, to put dark energy in context, what I'm going to, to, to do is first mention that the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to the discovery that the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. So we always knew the universe was expanding, but what this discovery was about is that this expansion is faster and faster with time. And the term dark energy just refers to this component of the universe that is making it accelerate faster and faster and essentially opposing gravity on the larger scale. And we do not know what it is, so astronomers have just called it dark energy to just reflect our state of ignorance. But understanding what that is is, I think, one of maybe the top question in science today, and a lot of people are actually working on it. So... What does that mean to us? I and mean, so you mentioned that. So this, what I got was the connection there of the dark energy in relation to uh, accelerating the expansion, which is fascinating to me. Does that mean then? Is the importance of that concept mean that just because of that, the acceleration of of the expansion is that why it's so important? It's very important because depending on the um, the density of the dark energy that exists we can predict many different fates for the universe. So you can have, um, there are a couple of, of different, uh, different outcomes of that expansion. One of them is called uh, the big freeze, which means that eventually as, you, as, as this expansion you know, continues and accelerates, basically everything in the universe freezes out. You basically, the amount of energy that is going to be there, the amount of um, energy between these different components are basically going to result in everything basically slowing down to a halt. So that's called a big freeze. But if the amount of dark energy is much higher, there is another outcome, which is called the big rip. And that means basically the universe gets ripped apart. The space-time that we know gets ripped apart at the end. And there are also many other, other, other potential um, outcomes in between. So part of what astronomers are doing now is trying to nail down the nature of this dark energy in terms of the the density of this dark energy, because that will tell us which outcome is right. It's not going to bother us on our human time scale, but it is going to be something that ultimately shapes the future of the universe. And another thing that's really important is that um, really one of the explanations for dark energy, there are many theories abound. We don't know what it is, but that doesn't prevent theories from speculating. 
But one of the most important speculation right now is that um, maybe Einstein's theory of gravity and general relativity, we just celebrated 100 years of it this year. It may be that this theory is actually incomplete on the very larger scale and that gravity basically relaxes its grip. So, you know, it cannot contain, and that would be what produces this expansion because gravity is always countering this expansion. So it has many implications in terms of the fundamental laws of physics, but also in terms of the practical outcome of what is the fate of the universe. Mm, this is so incredibly fascinating, Dr. Jogi. This is just awesome. Thank you. Um, now, related to this whole notion of dark energy, I read just a little bit about the HETDEX experiment, if I'm saying that right, that I understand that UT is leading. What's that experiment about? What's happening there? So, yes, you pronounce it perfectly. It's indeed called HETDEX. And um, what HEDDEX stands for is the Hobby Eberly Telescope Dark Energy Experiment. So that's what the acronym stands for. And the Hobby Eberly Telescope is one of the largest telescopes in the world, and it is associated with McDonnell Observatory. So what the HEDDEX experiment does is it is mapping, it is trying to constrain the nature of dark energy, and it does this by mapping a really huge area of the sky, 450 square degrees, which is a huge area in astronomy. And it aims to observe about a million galaxies, special kind of galaxies, star-forming galaxies, about 10 to 12 billion years ago in time. That's about, you know, a few percent of the age of the universe. It's a very early time in the universe. And basically by looking at how these galaxies are moving about and mapping their distribution, their velocities and their space-time distribution, it can basically constrain the nature of dark energy and separate between these different alternatives that I mentioned. And we are very excited about that because to do this experiment, the Hobby Eberly Telescope had really to undergo a renaissance. It really had to be completely transformed to make it bigger, faster, wider. This experiment, this transformation took many, many years. And just last week, we basically were able to announce the milestone that the technological advances have been done. They are ready to go. And now the HEDDEX experiment is actually set to start, you know, in the next couple of months. And we are incredibly excited about this because it's, it's a race against time. There are other teams in other universities and, and institutions across the world that are also racing to try to address this question. Oh, I think about how far science and technology has come in just the last few decades. It's mind-boggling mm-hmm. to me, right? It's just mind-boggling. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about the research that you and your research group have been conducting. I know we've talked a little bit about some of the some of the, the, the overall approach that your department is taking, and I know again that your own research expertise is in the area of galaxies. Um, but I really want to understand a bit more about that. You mentioned early in the, in the, in the introduction piece how galaxies grow their stars, the black hole piece, the dark matter. Um, and I think it's interesting you mentioned over the last 12 billion years. I just find that an amazing number number here to, to contemplate. But I want to understand what are the mysteries that when you think about this kind of thing, galaxy growth, et cetera, that intrigue you? Black holes, all those kind of things. What is it and what are you working on? So, you know, to me it's always fascinating. And I always tell my students this. If you look at 1920, which is not that far back, Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't even know that galaxies beyond our Milky Way existed. I mean, it was a debate whether they were in external galaxy, and today we know over a billion galaxies beyond our Milky Way exist. And many of the galaxies that we see today, you know, they are massive. They have more stars than they have gas, so they have formed pretty much all the stars that they can form. 
And they also have well-developed structures. So they have things that we call disks, which is like a pancake. It contains spiral arm, gas, and stars. So our own Milky Way is a spiral galaxy. It has this kind of disk with spiral arms in it. But we also see some other kind of components in galaxies which are called bulges or elliptical. So these are not pancake-like. They are puffed up, and they have important implications for the dynamics of the galaxies. And these kind of structures are not forming stars. They are basically dead. And so these are the two kind of things we see in the present-day universe. But when we look, we take telescope and we take very deep exposure and we are able to see these distant young galaxies even 13 billion years ago when the universe was, you know, in its infancy, the universe was then maybe a few percent of its age, less than a percent of its age today. We actually then see the, the seeds, you know, the progenitors of today's galaxies. And, and these progenitors are just dramatically different. They are smaller. Most of their mass is in the form of gas. Their structures are quite different. Many of these galaxies are still in the form of pancakes, and most of them have not developed this kind of puffed-up structure that we see. So my research tried to understand what type of processes in the universe transform these seeds, these galaxy seeds, um, into the kind of galaxies that we see today. And, and there are many competing theories. Is it, you know, violent galaxy collisions that did this, that grew these galaxies? This is what pe pe people believe, I would say, un until um, eight years ago. But now the paradigm is changing, and we are finding evidence that actually the, what we all believed was the transformation mode is not actually correct. There are other more quiet processes that are happening. And so really understanding how these galaxies grow and by association how their black holes in the center grow is something that is my, that is, that is very, um, you know, that is the heart of my research, I would say. Again, I, I wonder how it is. I think about what it must be for you to get out of bed in the morning. It sounds so intriguing. Easy, yes? Yes, <laughs> and it's actually hard to go to bed at night. Because <laughs> I, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. About, I, I about really, about really applaud what the work that you're doing and appreciate that you get to inform us about what how it is that we exist in the world or how they, the world exists for us, maybe is a better way to say it. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to reach out to, to a broad audience through your wonderful program. Well, thank you. Well, along those lines, speaking of bridging, one of the things that I, that I know that you do, of course, you're a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and so that means that you also teach undergraduate students majoring in sciences as well as non-science majors, I understand. So I would love to understand, we've got just maybe two minutes before the break here, how do you and your department integrate research, education, and improve the STEM pipeline? Well, you know, one thing that we always bear in mind in the department is that, you know, as a nation, uh, many reports have indicated that we are completely underproducing the number of STEM graduates we need, maybe by about a million or so. And so in astronomy, we have started in the last, last decade um, to promote a, an education model where we engage students very early in research, and we provide them with peer mentoring and peer communities. And these active learning strategies, you know, are very much in contrast to the old teaching models where students just learn passively from textbook and absorb the knowledge, while here we're actually helping them create knowledge. And these new research-centered techniques have actually been shown to be quite effective to improve the STEM retention and graduate rates. Um, they also promote innovation, critical thinking, and data-intensive computer skills. So they help to build a better quality pipeline, but also to increase it, and also to make the students marketable. Many of them don't actually stay in astronomy, but they go elsewhere, but these skills are skills for life. 
And I should also mention that these efforts are not just in astronomy, but also across the whole College of Natural Science at UT. The college actually pioneered um, this successful program called the Freshman Research Initiative. We call it FRI, and it is now being reproduced across the nation. And the basic idea, as the name suggests, FRI, Freshman Research Initiative, is to get students already in their freshman year get engaged into this research stream so they take an active role already from the beginning and they embrace and generate knowledge in a much more effective way. You make it sound so crisp, and I appreciate that you're able to convey such information in a short amount of time. Perfect time, too, because we're up for a short break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Sharda Jogi, who is a professor, astronomer, and the chair of the Department of Astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin. After the break, we'll talk a bit more about the international collaboration that's occurring in the field of astronomy and how Dr. Jogi and the University of Austin are involved. Stay with us. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us and tuning in, my guest is Dr. Sharda Jogi, who is a professor, astronomer, and the chair of the Department of Astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, we have been talking a bit about really what's happening in her field and what she's been working on, she and her colleagues. From here, we'll be talking more about the international collaboration. I'm Elise Cortez, your host, and we appreciate you staying tuned for this important, really, in many ways, you're teaching us about, about astronomy and hopefully, I hope, alluring some of our listeners into the field. That's my hope, anyway. Um, so for this next segment, for this next question here, I really want to understand, this is something, again, that you and I talked about some years ago when we met um, I know that much of your scientific research on galaxies in the early 2000s was revolutionized by the Hubble Space Telescope's new cap- cap- capabilities, um, something that I find actually quite interesting that that even exists. But I do want to understand, for me and the benefit of our listeners, why was the Hubble Space Telescope so important? Okay, so uh, when we observe galaxies from the ground, from a ground-based telescope, the light has to go through the Earth's atmosphere, and that degrades the image that you get in three main ways. First of all, the Earth's atmosphere blurs the image, so your image is not sharp, um, as, as sharp as it could be without the atmosphere. Secondly, 
a number of um, some some fraction of ultraviolet light gets absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere, so it doesn't even reach you. And that is important because ultraviolet light tells us about uh, massive stars in the universe. And thirdly, at infrared wavelengths, the sky adds background. It's a bit like adding glare. So when you have infrared glare in your image, you cannot really see the really faint infrared sources. So what the Hubble does is it's positioned about 600 kilometers above the Earth. So you basically bypass the atmosphere. The light from the distant sources reaches your telescope without having to go to the atmosphere. So all these three problems goes away, blurring, infrared glare and absorption of ultraviolet light. So you get a huge advantage, and that's why Hubble images are so sharp and so beautiful. And in addition, you mentioned the 2000. So the 2000 was also very important because basically Hubble had a facelift in the sense that it got a new camera called the Advanced Camera for Surveys, and that camera had a really big field of view compared to the previous optical camera. So that means suddenly instead of looking at a tiny region of the sky, you could look at huge swath of the sky. So instead of having a sample of 46 galaxies, you had a sample of, you know, several thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And statistics are very important to put your results in firm footing and also, you know, to see is your result representative. If you point at two different regions of the sky, do you get the same result? Or is it just one region, you know, just happens to be that weird region you were looking at? So the Hubble allowed us, um, as of 2000, with the ACS camera to be, you know, to do these, these really transformational galaxy surveys in my, in my field. You know, one of the things I have to point out is, again, since I know you're interested in this, in, in, I think you said, did you say English literature when you first did your introduction? Is that what you yes. said? Yes. Okay, I want to really commend and applaud your wonderful ability to be able to bring really interesting, um, what I would also call though everyday language into how you describe your field and the science and the work that you do because it makes it so accessible to those of us who aren't in it. Yes, and you know, and, and in astronomy, we really believe in outreach and public outreach and making this beautiful science accessible to absolutely everybody. So this is something we are very happy uh, about if, when we can actually get you know, away from the acronyms and actually be able to just transmit this beauty in simple terms to, to everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, it's wonderful to listen to, I might tell you. I think my listeners will agree. Um, so, so next, what I would love to hear about, I know that you and your students are, are working on, on are, are part of that international science collaboration using this very Hubble Space Telescope. Would love to hear a little bit more about the nature of these, these collaborations. I remember distinctly, again, being very intrigued by that conversation just briefly on the bus when, in one of our conversations. Help us understand this. What's happening? So, so once this advanced camera for surveys was installed for the Hubble, um, it really started this era of large galaxy surveys, as I mentioned, and also large science collaborations came with it. And so these collaborations basically form by inviting a few astronomers. Each one of these astronomers will lead one specific area of research. For instance, I would be invited to lead research on disk galaxies, like the Milky Way. Someone else would be invited to lead research on elliptical galaxies, someone else on stars, and so on. So these kind of big collaboration, then write a proposal to get a large amount of survey time on the Hubble. And we propose a survey strategy that means instead of addressing one question with this data, we are going to address a whole slew of important scientific questions. 
And if we are lucky, we get time on the Hubble with a strategy. Only 15% of proposals worldwide actually get accepted by the Hubble allocation com- time allocation committee. And, um, and so I was part of many of these international collaboration to get time on the Hubble. And aside from the power of the science, this collaboration were really fascinating because, you know, they were international. They would have astronomers from countries in the USA, Europe, and Asia, maybe 12 countries at a time. And we would have telecons every month, and then we would have face-to-face meeting at least once every six months. So, you know, seeing this diversity in culture, in the way different different groups of people with different backgrounds address the science, I think was as interesting as the science itself. And it was a wonderful experience for my graduate students because they were part of an international collaboration. They got to travel. They got to uh, to share their science. And, you know, in my team, I had each of my graduate students lead one paper, and so they would present their results and, and really get transformed from students into scientists, I think, through this collaboration and this process. So incredibly stimulating to be able to share ideas across cultures with people. I think that's fascinating. I also got to present my research in India a couple of years ago. And just like you're saying, to be able to bridge cultures and language Mm -hmm. and perspectives. Oh, I really hope that people who are listening, who are even considering studying the field or or joining it, I hope you find this as interesting as I do. (laughs) It's too old for me to change, but but we can still inspire others, right, Dr. Jogi? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to change. I might have to work on you uh, with respect okay. to that. <laughs> oh, good. I'm being recruited. I like it. Um, well, uh, along a, a bit more deeper, a bit more deeper dive there, I wanted to understand. I know that recently, as a, as a faculty member of UT Austin, your your scientific research is leveraging a much broader suite of facilities. And we talked about NASA's space telescopes and Texas facilities, and like McDonald Observatory and the Texas Advanced Computing Center were a couple. But would love to hear a, a bit about the scientific projects you are working on, and also I know about that recent grant award that you got. Yes, I'm very excited about that. This was a lot of hard work. It took us four years to get this grant. But uh, taking a step back, um, so as you said, in recent time, my research has broadened, and I've been using really the leverage of different space telescopes, the Hubble, also NASA's Herschel and, Sp- and Spitzer telescope. These are basically infrared telescopes. The Hubble is mostly optical for my research. Um, and also ground-based telescope, McNeil Observatory, Texas Advanced Computing Center, and one of the projects I'm working on um, is, is something I've been interested in for a long time, which is why do galaxies differ so dramatically in different environments? So if you look around us in the universe and you look at a low-density environment, that means an environment where, you know, galaxies are not very uh, packed together. They are basically distant. And it's a little bit like the countryside as opposed to the city center. So in a low-density environment, you find that most galaxies are like our Milky Way. But if you go in a high-density environment, and the analogy to that is the city center where things are tightly packed together, you find that almost all galaxies are elliptical red and dead galaxies. There's almost no galaxy like the Milky Way. So, you know, had we been, quote-unquote, born in that environment, our galaxy would not have existed today. So why is that difference? You know, what is it in this different environment that drives these differences? And part of answering that question, one of the most effective way of answering that question is to actually go back in time, 10 to 12 billion years ago, and look at the epoch where these clusters, this high-density environment were forming, and basically look at what was happening there and see if we can unravel, you know, what, what, 
what, what basically killed all the Milky Way galaxies. And so one of the ways I'm doing that right now is by um, combining uh, some of the data coming from the Head Deck Survey from McDonnell Observatory with some of NASA's space um, telescope. And um, in, uh, in April of this year, we were just awarded a big grant of 0.9 million from the National Science Foundation um, to get, you know, to, to actually advance the science. And this collaboration is actually a collaboration between the University of Texas at Austin, but also Texas A&M and Penn State University. And so we are all really, really excited. It took us three tries to get this grant, but I think the power of this of these combined surveys made their mark on the committee. And, you know, this brings me to what I would consider to be a pretty important point, because I can well imagine that this this kind of science, any kind of science, takes dollars. It takes money. Uh, so I would be pretty curious to understand how do you and your colleagues fund your scientific research in astronomy at the UT of Austin? So um, as you know, as I alluded in my in my last answer, you know, part of this funding is federal. So we get federal funding from the National Science Foundation, from the from NASA, the Department of Energy. But these are extremely competitive. Uh, between ten to maybe 15% of proposal are funded each year. So, you know, the majority of proposal are not funded. Um, so that's one way we get, we get funding. And funding means funding for our students. We support their studies. We send them to conferences. It's not funding for us. It's really funding for our research group. The other way is some state funding comes to us, but this is a national problem right now that, you know, state funding has dramatically decreased in the last 30 years. And so only a tiny amount of funding is coming from the state. And then in astronomy, we are very, very lucky. We have this wonderful board of visitors, this philanthropic board of visitors. And they are essentially wonderful people who have an interest in astronomy and advancing astronomy. They are not astronomers. They are actually, you know, anywhere from teachers, artists, um, businessmen, lawyers, members of, of the state legislature, and so on. And they act as our advocates, but they also act as fundraisers for us. And we are very, very lucky to have had such a group over the last 30 years. I was just last week talking to our board of visitors in West Texas. And so uh, philanthropic efforts are very important across the country. And a lot of astronomy programs are waking up to this fact. And we have been lucky to have this board of visitors, you know, working with us over the many, many last decades. Um, but it is a, a, astronomy is becoming expensive. The questions are becoming harder. And so I think across the nation you will see this wave of, of philanthropic uh, efforts needed to fund basic science. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we're, we've got some listeners on the uh, that will actually take up some spark of interest and help us out just a little bit. Um, we have just a little bit of time left, Dr. Jogi, like maybe three minutes or so, and I would love to hear a, a little bit about the Giant Magellan Telescope and why that's significant, and, and how is, the, is UT Austin involved? Well, the Giant Magellan Telescope will be perhaps will be one of the world's largest telescopes when it is finished, uh, constructed in the next decade, uh, maybe the world's largest telescope. And uh, its size is going to be 25 meter. The, the size of its mirror is going to be 25 meter compared to 10 meter class telescope now. And that will make it incredibly sensitive. It can see very, very distant objects. And it will also be giving extremely sharp images, maybe 10 times sharper than the Hubble. So that will be quite a revolution. And astronomy, UT astronomy, is actually one of the major founding partners of the Giant Magellan Telescope. And, you know, we aim to be a 10% partner in this elite consortium. 
and we contribute capital costs, we contribute scientific expertise and instrumentation. And our hope is that, you know, GNT will attract the best faculty, the best students to the state of Texas, and it will also allow breakthrough on, you know, the most fundamental questions about our universe. How did our universe begin? We are going to be able to look even further back in time. And how did it begin and how did it evolve into galaxies, stars, and planets? Um, how did the first stars galaxies and black holes form, and, uh, and ultimately what is the nature of dark energy, dark matter, and the fate of the universe. So all of these are basically frontiers that we are going to be able to push even further back with the GMT, and we are very excited. First light, when the telescope starts operating, is expected to be in 2022, so it's actually right around the corner. Mm. Wonderful, Dr. Jogi. Um, just maybe in the last 30 seconds for, for your side there, Anything you'd like to leave our listeners with before I close? Well, I would say, I mean, for me, as I look at my career, um, it's been, I've had to balance being a mother, being a scientist, taking academic leadership. And I think my guiding principle has always been, you know, at the end of the day, when you go home and you just think about what is it that you are contributing, it's very important to contribute something bigger than yourself, something on a larger scale. Um, at the end of the day, this is, I think, what matters, and I would urge every young listener as they're trying to pick a career to think about that, about these considerations, doing something on a scale larger than yourself. Mm, wonderful way to finish. Please tell us, if you would, how our listeners can find your website. What is the website address? Okay, so my website is www.as.utexas.utexas. .edu slash and then Tweedle SJ. Those are my initial. Okay, great. www.as.utexas.edu Tweedle SJ. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Jogi. Thank you so much for being on the show. What an interesting and compelling conversation today. Thank Next you for week, having me, Elise. Yes, absolutely. Next week, we'll be on the air with Eric Welch, who is the founder and CEO of Impact Project, and learn how he and his movement are working to enact sustainable social change in villages across the globe. See you next week, and remember, it works at least one-third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.